0: PART Five, SECTION 1 OF THE TRIAL OF CALLISTA BLAKE THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY ROGER MALINE THE TRIAL OF CALLISTA BLAKE BY EDGAR PANGBORN PART Five, SECTION 1 IT IS INDEED SOME EXCUSE TO BE MAD WITH THE GREATER PART OF MANKIND. ERASMUS, COLLOQUIES, Answering T.J. Hunter's inquiry about her occupation, Mrs. Phelps Jason of Shanesville replied, in her own time and manner, I am a widow with a limited private income, not employed in the usual sense, certainly not employed in the sense of idle. I manage my Shanesville property as a wildlife sanctuary and am secretary of the Winchester County Anti-Vivisection League judge Mann exhaled one of those human however in the minute book belatedly he entered the date december ninth, and the witness's name on the pad he sketched a dour blue jay cuddling field glasses mrs jason how did you spend the afternoon of friday august 7th she made no fussy business of verifying the date on that day i attended a picnic given by my neighbors dr and mrs herbert chalmers who were the others present if you recall besides dr and mrs chalmers there were mr and mrs james doherty mr nathaniel judd and mr and mrs thomas wayne of shanesville with their two children also miss maud welsh and callista blake ARE YOU WELL ACQUAINTED WITH THE DEFENDANT, CALLISTA BLAKE? REASONABLY WELL. I MET HER FIRST IN 1951, WHEN SHE WAS ELEVEN. THAT IS EIGHT YEARS. Mann sighed and relaxed. EIGHT YEARS AGO, LAW PRACTICE AT Mann AND WHEATLEY, ALREADY ROUTINE. 1951 WAS THE FOREMAN WILL CASE. AND SPARE TIME READING IN CONSTITUTIONAL LAW WITH OLD JOE WHEATLEY, UNCLE NORTON, A DUSTY MEMORY, AND CREEPING UP ON FORTY. YOU'VE BEEN CONTINUOUSLY ACQUAINTED WITH MISS BLAKE ALL THAT TIME? YES. OF COURSE I SAW LESS OF HER AFTER SHE MOVED TO WINCHESTER. AT THAT PICNIC, AUGUST 7TH, DID YOU HAVE ANY TALK WITH HER? No, we waved or nodded, I suppose, when I arrived. Those picnics are quite informal. The fact that I had no talk with her was accidental. I was engaged with the other guests, and she was spending her time with the Wayne children. All her time? Why, yes, until about 3.30, anyhow. Did anything noteworthy happen, then? I don't know if I can judge what's noteworthy, Mr. Hunter." Mann's attention sharpened at the hint of hostility. Was this state's witness by any chance intending to pull the rug out from under Hunter? I'll rephrase my question. At 3.30 did anything happen important enough so that you now remember it and wish to tell it under oath? "'It's not a question of my wishing to tell it, Mr. Hunter. I do not. If I may use an old-fashioned and unpopular word, it's a matter of duty.' At 3.30, Callista went alone into a wild garden back of the lawn. "'Are you yourself familiar with that wild garden?' "'Yes.' "'I ask you to show the jury, on this map, the location and extent of the wild garden.' and describe it in your own words, if you will. Tense but self-contained, Mrs. Jason stood by the map, her hands moving intelligently, her voice firm and rather pleasant. Man recalled that she had given her age as forty-seven, his own age, more weathered than himself in the face, but an outdoor type, possibly better preserved, her figure attractive and graceful. The wild garden area is roughly square, about a hundred feet on a side. It's closed away from the lawn by a mixed hedge of forsythia and lilac. There's only one break in that hedge, an angled passage about two feet wide. It's marked here. Angled? You mean the opening is on a slant? Double slant, zigzag. The hedge is ten or twelve feet thick. That forsythia will take over everything. I understand the little passage has to be pruned out fresh every year. If it's a zigzag, then you can't look through from the lawn area into the wild garden. Is that correct? Correct from the lawn, it looks like an unbroken hedge. Well, the wild garden itself is just a patch where everything's been left more or less natural. "'There's an old paper birch, hardy perennials. "'In earlier testimony, the plant Monkshood was mentioned "'in connection with that wild garden. "'Have you seen it growing there?' "'Yes,' she spoke reluctantly, returning to the witness chair. "'After 3.30, when did you next see Callista Blake?' "'About quarter past four, getting into her Volkswagen.' You didn't see her come out of that wild garden? No, I didn't happen to. I think I'd gone indoors for a while. You're quite certain she went into the wild garden alone? The children couldn't have gone with her, or perhaps ahead of her? No, they didn't. Shortly before 3.30, Doris Wayne, she's ten, started an argument with her younger brother, Billy, Mrs. Wayne reproved them, told them to sit by the picnic table and restrain their voices. They did. Mrs. Jason glacially smiled. The origin of the argument—well, that might lead us too far afield. Just, if the court please— Cecil Warner cleared his throat with sudden but stately sonority— i submit that to appease the curiosity of all present including myself the casus belly between doris and william wayne though doubtless not part of the race eye, should be made known cecil was even standing making a production of it announcing with eyebrows and twinkle that all he wanted was to have a bit of ponderous fun and relieve the tension what could be more innocent Risky, but man wanted to play along. He said, hm, yes. The rules of evidence should not debar us from ascertaining the gravamen of this ancillary conflict. How'm I doing, Cecil? Gravamen ancillary? Each five dollars, please. Hunter looked uneasy, not prepared with any elephantine humor of his own. Well, your honor. Callista had been showing Doris Wayne how to make a squeak by blowing across a grass blade held between the thumbs. The effect on neighboring eardrums is impressive. The argument I mentioned arose when Billy wished to perfect himself in the same peculiar art and was informed by his sister that he was not old enough. Mann let the courtroom rumble while Cecil Warner sat down, poker-faced. NOW THE JURY COULD NEVER QUITE FORGET THAT THIS WAS A GIRL WHO COULD PLAY WITH CHILDREN, THAT THE CHILDREN MUST HAVE LIKED HER, THAT CHILDREN ARE OFTEN JUDGES OF CHARACTER, AND SO MAYBE. CALLISTA THIS MORNING WAS LOOKING DIFFERENT. SINCE SHE FIRST APPEARED, JUDGE Mann's GAZE HAD BEEN REPEATEDLY DRAWN TO HER AS HE TRIED TO DISCOVER THE NATURE OF THE CHANGE. NO MAKE-UP, DRESSED THE SAME the white blouse more wilted. But her cheeks showed faint color. Her mouth was not set in such a bitter line. Once or twice, when Warner whispered to her, she smiled, a flash of light almost shocking in its unexpected sweetness. And when her thin face was relaxed, perhaps the only word for it this morning was peacefulness. With no change in the circumstances, with the troubled honest woman on the stand obviously about to do a little more toward destroying her from a sense of duty what had callista blake to do with peacefulness he noticed also that red-headed edith nolan had managed to get a seat one row nearer the arena and her candid blue eyes seldom left the face of her friend mrs jason did you notice callista blake talking with anyone but the children that afternoon when she was leaving, I saw Dr. Chalmers standing by her car, talking with her, and the children ran over to say good "'No one else?' Mrs. Jason shrugged. "'Everything informal, acquaintances of long-standing, no occasion for formal gestures.' "'How was Miss Blake dressed that day?' "'Brown skirt, green blouse, very nice with her color.' DID YOU NOTICE A SHOULDER-STRAP BAG? YES. WERE YOU AWARE OF ANY CONSTRAINT OR HOSTILITY BETWEEN CALLISTA BLAKE AND ANY OF THE GUESTS AT THAT PICNIC? CONCLUSIONS OF THE WITNESS. MAN SAID, I'LL RULE IT ADMISSIBLE, BUT LIMIT YOURSELF TO THE SINGLE QUESTION, MRS. JASON. THE ANSWER IS NO, I WASN'T AWARE OF ANY SUCH THING. Early this year, before the 1st of May, did you learn, by direct observation, of anything unusual about the relation existing between Callista Blake and James Doherty? Objection! Leading the witness. No relevance established. The relevance is direct to the question of motive. Objection overruled. Exception! Exception! "'Shall I repeat my question, Mrs. Jason?' "'You needn't. The answer is no.' "'What about after the first of May?' "'I learned on the twelfth of May "'that there was a love affair between Callista Blake and Jim Doherty.' "'Her brusque answer, shoving aside legal caution, "'came on a note of regret that man thought could not be false. "'Her mind precise, somewhat fanatic, Mrs. Jason would be a truth-teller at any cost. Never knowingly unjust according to her own standards, she might wish to temper duty with kindness, but her habits of self-rule would not allow much of that. Shall I tell of this in my own words? Yes, please. Very early on the morning of May 12th, about two o'clock, I was walking up Summer Avenue toward the junction with Walton Road. I take walks at night sometimes, to observe the activities of wild things. Also, because I sleep poorly. A short walk is sometimes helpful. I knew Mrs. Doherty was away for a visit of a few days with her parents in Philadelphia, by the way. As I walked down the road toward the Doherty house, there were no lights in it. I was wearing tennis shoes, walking quietly. Near the Doherty's driveway, I heard the voices of Jim Doherty and Callista, both very individual voices and, of course, familiar to me. They were standing together in the drive. Jim's car was there, pointed toward the road. Moonlight, I was partly hidden by roadside bushes, I'm sure they didn't see or hear me. AS I WAS ABOUT TO RETREAT, THEY SAT DOWN ON THE GRASS NEAR THE CAR AND WERE THEN TURNED MORE TOWARD ME, WOULD ALMOST CERTAINLY HAVE SEEN ME IF I HAD MOVED. THE—THE SITUATION WAS SUCH THAT I COULD NOT LET THEM KNOW I WAS THERE, TOO PAINFUL FOR ALL THREE OF US. BUT I MUST NOW ASK WHAT, IF ANYTHING, YOU SAW OR OVERHEARD. OH, JIM SAID, WHAT ARE WE GOING TO DO? And Callista said, "'There aren't so many solutions, Jimmy. Find a little strength, anyway. It isn't the end of the world.' And he, I did not hear his answer. What else was said? Callista said, "'The only real solution is one I'm not ready to face, Jimmy.' I heard nothing else that she said. "'They were just sitting there on the grass?' she frowned judge mann saw her lips move i'm afraid the jury didn't hear you mrs jason i said she was holding his hand to her breast you're a witness mr warner warner stood by the defense table one hand maintaining contact with it in that overheard conversation mrs jason THE NAME OF ANN, MRS. DOHERTY, WAS NOT MENTIONED BY EITHER OF THEM? NO, SIR. I'VE REPEATED EVERYTHING I HEARD. DID THEY LEARN OF YOUR PRESENCE THERE? NO. I SLIPPED AWAY. I SAW THE CAR. WELL, IF IT MATTERS. GO AHEAD. WHEN I WAS NEARLY TO MY HOUSE, I SAW THE CAR COME OUT OF THE DRIVE AND GO TOWARD THE WALTON ROAD JUNCTION. ALL YOU LEARNED ACTUALLY WAS THAT SOME SORT OF LOVE RELATION HAD EVIDENTLY DEVELOPED BETWEEN THESE TWO? YES, SIR, THAT'S ALL I LEARNED. MRS. JASON, I TAKE YOU TO BE A LITERATE PERSON AND A LOVER OF TRUTH. AS SUCH, I ASK YOU TO CONSIDER THE THING YOU'VE QUOTED Callista AS SAYING, THE ONLY REAL SOLUTION IS ONE I'M NOT READY TO FACE. WOULD YOU AGREE THAT SUCH A REMARK made under the conditions you have described could be interpreted in many different ways yes certainly for example whatever it was she referred to may have seemed at the time to a nineteen-year-old girl like the only real solution and yet the words don't give another person any actual clues as to what she meant that's true As a lover of truth, would you also agree that you do not know at first hand one single fact or group of facts which would justify an inference that the love relation between these two people was responsible for the death two months later of Ann Doherty? T.J. Hunter was examining his fingernails with labored disgust. Mrs. Jason said at last, "'That is true,' I know they were in love with each other for a while. I know Anne died. So far as genuine knowledge is concerned, that's all I do know, Mr. Warner. Thank you. No further questions. If he had been defense counsel, Mann was thinking, he would probably have gone too far with the woman, perhaps losing everything in the hope of winning a little more. For a lawyer, I'm not the damn type and man reminded himself that there is no type. You recognize a few general patterns, but the simplest human individual is not to be duplicated in a billion centuries. A ruddy gray-haired man was being sworn in. Paunchy, scant of breath, his prominent eyes had the directionless belligerency of a man in some habitual dread of being laughed at. Nathaniel Judd, sir, senior partner in the firm of Judd and Doherty. The junior partner is Mr. James Doherty, correct? Yes, sir, since 1955. Your business is real estate and general insurance? Yes, sir. Judd spoke breathily on a while about that. Overweight, poor, and changeable color slow motions when his body's natural habit should have been a jerky aggressiveness. Maybe what he feared was not only laughter. Jack, with his comprehensive doctor's glance, might have seen Nathaniel Judd as a candidate for a coronary, if the man hadn't already suffered one. Judd was telling how his only son, killed in action in Korea, had been a close friend of James Doherty's overseas. Dorothy had written when the boy died, and had looked up Judd after his discharge. Much as anyone could said, short-breathed Judd, he's been like another son to me. Took him into the firm, 1955. Fine head for business. Good boy. 61 myself. Not too active nowadays. "'Did you meet Mrs. Doherty also that year, 1955?' "'Yes, sir. Soon after they settled in Shanesville, they invited my wife and me to dinner. Very nice. Met her then. Played bridge.' "'Did you meet the Chalmers family then, too? And Miss Blake?' "'That summer, anyhow. Miss Blake was fifteen. For a lumpily-mottled face, Judd's was expressive. When he mentioned her, the blobby features sagged. "'You went to a picnic at the Chalmerses' 7th of August this year?' "'Yes. Can't add anything to what Ella Jason testified.' But Hunter fussed at it a while. Man's attention wandered. "'No individual like another. No one replaceable.' not vague soft Judd, for instance, or any other. A commonplace. Why go on worrying at it, insisting that no one is expendable? Expendable. The stink of that word lingered from a war already part forgotten, obscured by a more vast and quiet terror. Under the new terror, the politics of nineteen fifty nine had been squirming in a fantastic display of the passions of a disturbed anthill. expendable well the first to express this obscenity must have been some thick-browed operator of prehistory who found his fellows could be manipulated by appropriate grunts and chest thumpings into doing a concerted job of skull busting and rape on those bad people with a better campsite and interesting females, as the original inventor of advertising was the one man or woman who first got the idea of tying a rag on the genitals. Man remembered how in the war years most people, having gagged a bit at the gnat of that word expendable, had then swallowed the camel of the fact with no great strain. How does it happen that a man who transferred to the medics, mostly out of distaste for carrying a rifle, is now a judge of General Sessions in a state that keeps the death penalty on the books? Have you met Miss Blake often since she moved to Winchester? No, sir, hardly at all. We hadn't much in common. I see. No ill feeling between you, was there?" No, sir, not that. I get along with people, try to. Judd looked more unhappy. Perhaps he felt the prosecutor's silence pushing him. Well, when I thought about it at all, guess I supposed she'd outgrow that cynical attitude, atheism, all that stuff. I object, Warner spoke quietly and for once coldly. Again, the prosecution allows a witness to express loose, incompetent opinions. Objection sustained. Hunter elaborated a patient smile. Judd looked bewildered and dismayed. What had he done? Warner said, My thanks to the court. I will express the hope that religious bias will not again be injected. Hunter's face flamed. THERE'S NO RELIGIOUS ISSUE INJECTED. THE WITNESS HAS CHOSEN TO CALL MY CLIENT AN ATHEIST. THE STATEMENT IS INCOMPETENT. MR. JUDD HAS NEVER ACTUALLY LEARNED MISS BLAKE'S OPINIONS ON RELIGIOUS MATTERS. WHY SHOULD HE? AND SINCE THE QUESTION OF RELIGION IS TOTALLY IRRELEVANT HERE, WHAT WAS THE PURPOSE OF THAT REMARK, IF NOT TO INFLAME PREJUDICE? WHAT WAS THE PURPOSE? Callista BLAKE, WHITE, cool unreasonably peaceful did not look up remaining in the country of her own thoughts mann said mr warner's objection has been sustained because the court agrees that the witness's remark was out of order but mr warner you were out of line too in suggesting an intent to prejudice the jury the witness spoke carelessly as he should have been instructed not to do It must not be supposed that he did so with malice. If it should later appear that a religious issue is relevant, then let discussion of it be carried out in the closing arguments of prosecution and defense, not in the course of testimony, which must deal with facts. Counsel to the bench a moment, please. Callista Blake did look up then, as Warner left her side. Man felt the puzzled study of her eyes as the lawyers leaned to him, T.J. Hunter starting to whisper some comment on the clash, which Mann shut off with a wave of his hand. "'Not that. T.J., your witness isn't looking good. Has he ever had a coronary, do you know?' Hunter was startled. "'Don't think so. Never said so.' "'Was he that short of breath the last time you talked with him?' "'Sure. Just out of condition, I think, Judge.' Warner unobtrusively appraised Judd and said nothing. "'All right. Watch it, both of you. Can't have him conking out.' "'Mr. Judd, as a friend and business partner of James Doherty, have you often visited at his house in Shanesville?' "'Oh, yes. Real often. Pretty near every month.' did miss blake ever call there when you were present no wait i do remember one time before she moved to winchester not a call exactly mrs judd and i had stayed with the dohertys overnight the weekend remember now the girl came over sunday morning when the four of us were getting into jim's car to go to mass The Chalmerses wanted to give Jim and Anne some maple syrup they'd made on the place, and it was Miss Blake who brought it over. Spring of last year. Come to think that was the last time I saw Miss Blake before she moved to Winchester. And after that, you say, you saw her hardly at all?" Judd flushed and paled. To be exact, sir, just once. CAN YOU GIVE US THE EXACT DATE? FRIDAY, JUNE 19TH. AND THE PLACE AND THE TIME OF DAY? MY OFFICE IN WINCHESTER, ABOUT TEN IN THE EVENING. PLEASE DESCRIBE THIS OCCASION IN YOUR OWN WAY. WELL, MY SECRETARY MISS ANDERSON HAD BEEN OUT SICK SEVERAL DAYS, SO JIM AND I WERE SWAMPED WITH WORK. I LEFT THE OFFICE MY USUAL TIME took home some stuff. Jim said he'd stay and work late. Evening, found I'd forgotten something, drove back for it, near ten o'clock. Light on in Jim's office, door of the outer office, braced open, way I'd left it, for fresh air. Guess that's how I came to go in so quiet. Wasn't trying to, certainly. Past doorway of Jim's office, saw Miss Blake was in there. Judd swallowed and coughed. Compromising situation. Do you mean they were embracing something like that? Call it that. Divan, Jim's office. Wouldn't have believed it. Was an innocent interpretation possible? She had felt faint or... Nothing like that, sir. Slacks under things, arm of divan. Are you saying Miss Blake was nude? Wearing a a blouse. The listeners were too intent to snigger. Was Doherty also undressed? Part, partly. Were they, to your knowledge, engaged in sexual intercourse? Yes, yes, they were. Short of breath, the courtroom sighed. "'What did you do, Mr. Judd?' "'Stepped back. Got papers I wanted. Left.' "'They didn't learn of your presence, so far as you know?' "'No,' he said, his breath still a burden to him. "'No.' "'You can be certain they didn't see you in the doorway? How?' "'Their eyes were closed.' "'Your witness, Mr. Warner.' warner remained by the defense table standing his hands pressing heavily on the back of his chair callista looked as though she had heard some dull distasteful gossip about a neighbor mr judd did you speak of this episode later to james doherty or to anyone to jim yes judd's face showed unhealthy modeling following monday only right i thought had to have it out. You told him what you had inadvertently seen? Yes, felt I owed him that. Said, You want what I said? I think you might give the substance of the conversation. Well, I said it wouldn't do. Said, What about Anne? Jim was perfectly frank, honest. Told me he realized, whole affair, Terrible mistake. Shouldn't have started. Said he was breaking it off. Of course, i only too glad to leave it at that. Trust Jim's conscience, religious upbringing, and so on. Least said, soonest, and so on. There was no question of dissolving your partnership with him? Dissolving? Heavens, no. Never entered my head. YOU COULD FIND IT IN YOUR HEART TO FORGIVE HIM? NOT THE WAY I'D PUT IT, SIR. YOU JUST CAN'T CONDEMN A MAN FOR, FOR ONE MORAL LAPSE. COULD HAPPEN TO ANY HOT-BLOODED YOUNG MAN. YOU ARE DESCRIBING JAMES DOHERTY AS HOT-BLOODED? CALLISTA BLAKE LOWERED HER FACE IN HER HANDS. SHE WAS NOT WEEPING, HER BREATHING WAS SLOW AND REGULAR. Perhaps, Judge Mann thought, she needed to shut away the voices, the faces, the nearness of her accusers. He noticed the newsmen scribbling busily a moment, and heard among the spectators a rustling, shifting, sighing, as if they were in some manner bound to her and could not move till her motion released them. "'I don't know. Jim's a good boy. Just sort of slipped.' THE WOMAN TEMPTED HIM? HUNTER PROTESTED. COUNSEL HAS STRAYED FAR FROM THE MATTER OF DIRECT EXAMINATION AND IS TRYING TO PUT WORDS IN THE WITNESS'S MOUTH. Rephrase YOUR QUESTION, MR. WARNER. I'LL WITHDRAW IT. WARNER WAS SPEAKING GENTLY, ABSENTLY. MR. JUDD, YOU WERE DEEPLY CONCERNED FOR JAMES DOHERTY? OF COURSE terrible thing, especially if Anne... Yes, you were concerned for Mrs. Doherty too, were not you? Of course. For anyone else? What? Why, if you mean myself, I suppose... Oh, I don't know. You weren't concerned for anyone else? I don't get your drift. If you don't understand that question, I have no others." "'I—I—I have no other questions, Mr. Judd.' Disturbed, not immediately certain of the cause, Judge Mann asked, "'Do you wish to make a redirect examination, Mr. Hunter?' "'No, Your Honor, not necessary. I—' Judd's right hand groped towards his left arm and sagged away. He looked not exactly frightened— more as though shocked by some astonishing news. He said, "'I wish I—' As if meekly, apologetically, he tumbled out of the witness chair in a slow sprawl. End of Part 5, Section 1 Recording by Roger Moline